All right, we are going to be in James, as we have been, um, chapter 4. Can you believe that we're, we're getting close to the end here? Just a, a, few more, a few more weeks in James, and then it's going to be Thanksgiving, and then Advent, and the New Year, and Spring. <laughs> It'll be summer before you know it. So anybody that's worried about the weather turning, it's before you know it. It's, um, this, this morning is, uh, it's one of those passages, I think, often in James, that um, often in James we see him just speak very directly and very plainly. And like we've mentioned in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not so much that the content is hard to understand, it's hard to accept and to submit to and live out and James often is, is um, writing things that just seem like they're just, that they were written today. He could have written these things today, you know, about taming the tongue, about being slow to speak and, and quick to listen and, and slow to become angry. Like all of these different things that he says, you wonder, you know, was this written 2,000 years ago or is this written like last week? And that's such a powerful thing about the book of James and really all of scripture is how it keeps cutting to the root of the human experience and the core of the human heart. And we realize that we actually don't change that much over time. External circumstances change, cultures shift and change, but the heart of man is the heart of man. And so as we look at this today, let's, let's pray and ask God for help in understanding, but also help in living. Lord, please be with us, Lord, as we look and we face the words that you gave James to write for the church. I pray, Lord, that we would not be afraid of what we find. I pray that we would hear your voice, Holy Spirit. That we would feel conviction where we need to feel conviction. That we would be encouraged where we need to be encouraged. But that above all else, that we would turn to you. That we would desire to listen to you, to hear your voice, to see what you are calling us to see and to live in light of the promises that you have made to us. Help us, Lord. Forgive us our pride. Forgive us our sin. Clear all that out of our minds and let us just spend a little bit of time here laying ourselves and our hearts bare before you. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me ask, does anyone, is anyone experiencing any relational stress right now? No, nobody? Yeah, just laughter. I'm not meaning like in this exact moment, although for some of you it might be in this exact moment, but, but just generally, okay? Like we... We, I think we can like define our culture right now and look around and just see relational stress everywhere. And we can laugh about it, but we also know it's brought a lot of pain. Over the last several years, we've seen a lot of division. Division in relationships that we thought were solid. And that's always been a thing, but it feels like it's just amplified over the last five, six years where it feels like I, I hear over and over and over again stories of families being torn apart, marriages being torn apart, churches being torn apart. And it's hard. 
and we wonder what, what's happened. I don't know about you, but there have been many times where I've just sat and thought, what happened? How did we get here? How is there so much division? And we have so much of that right now, not only out in the world, but with coworkers or neighbors or family members, spouses, kids. And we wonder, can we get along? Is there any... Is there any offer of hope from God's word and from God about how we can be at peace with one another? Like, I, I'm a pretty, like, I, I like to debate, right? Like, I'm, I, I find entertainment in that sometimes. If it's, if it's like, good-natured and we're kind of on the same page, I, I enjoy that. I'm not afraid of confrontation, but I got to be honest. I've been weird. I, like, I'm so tired. I'm tired of the endless debating and the endless like arguing about everything. Maybe you are too. And James speaks to that. He tells us it's actually pretty simple why this is happening. He says in verse 1 of chapter 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. He's asking those very questions for us, and he gives an answer. It's because you don't have, and, so you, and you can't get it. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. And it sounds like he's getting a little extreme, by the way, with the murder talk. But remember how many parallels there are between the book of James and the Sermon on the Mount. And remember what Jesus said about murder. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So when James is saying that you murder, I believe that this is what he's talking about. I mean, he's had all these parallels, and he's saying, so let's lay this bare. Like, let's not, let's not sugarcoat this. Let's not just say, well, I kind of have a little, I'm not, I'm not really upset. I'm just like a little frustrated. And he's saying, ultimately, you are angry at your brother. You speak ill of your brother. And you are liable to the same judgment. And he asks, why do you do all this? Why is this a thing? Isn't it this? That your passions are at war within you? You want and do not have, you covet and cannot obtain? I mean, think about the world. Doesn't that describe what's going on? People want things the way they want it. And it comes out in all kinds of ridiculous ways. It comes out in road rage and political battles and social media posts. We want and we can't have, and so we fight. It comes out in jealousy and envy on social media when we see people and we kind of compete with each other to post a better picture of a vacation or a more wholesome picture of my family or more accomplishments or whatever. I'm trying to present this, and so we look at somebody who posts all that, and what's the first thing we do? We judge, gossip, slander. We want what we see and we can't have it. We see others having it, we covet it, and we can't have it. So we fight and we quarrel. Think of the last fight that you got into. The last argument. Maybe it was today. 
Does this not describe it? You wanted, you desired, you wanted the other person to think or to do a particular thing that they were not thinking or doing. Or you felt, maybe you found yourself feeling jealous, maybe even as you walked into church this morning, looking at someone else and coveting what they had and feeling in your heart a desire to slander or to gossip. If you think about it in the opposite, if you always got everything you wanted, if everything worked out the way that you wanted it to work out, and if everyone did what you thought was best and thought the way that you thought, what would you have to fight about? Some of you are probably sitting there thinking, finally, somebody gets it. Like, just if everybody thought the way I thought and did what I thought was best, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't have any fights. I wouldn't have any arguments. And so, in short, we might say, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not those people? Is it not those people who don't understand how the world works? Those people who don't understand that this is the best way to go about things or this is how we should think and this is what we should do? Those people who are trying to ruin your community, those people who are trying to ruin your country, those people who are trying to impose on your life, is it not that they don't realize that if you got everything you wanted and if the world worked exactly the way you thought it should, then everything would be fine? If they just realized that you're God, and that the world is about your kingdom? Now, we wouldn't be so brazen as to say that, right, out loud. But isn't it true? And our culture actually feeds into that from every angle. You're the master of your own domain, the king of your domicile, captain of your own ship. The truth is in you, autonomous, and we say, like, well, as long as people just leave me alone. Listen, you might say, like, I don't, I don't need everybody to think what I think. I just want the people who don't think what I think to stay far away from me. Right? Like, I'm totally open mind. I'm totally fine to let you do whatever ridiculous things you want to do. Just stay away from me. And the idea of live and let live seems great. The culture likes to point that out from all sides until our kingdoms clash. And what happens when what I want collides with what you want? Our kingdoms go to war. We fight and we quarrel. See, what we're doing is, in our own minds, we've cultivated our own view of what the kingdom is. And often, if we're in the church, it, it contains some things about God's kingdom, some things about it that the things usually we get really excited about or really passionate about. And we, we take those and we put those into our kingdom, but make no mistake, at the end of the day, all of us fight with which kingdom we're really a part of. No matter how much that kingdom you and I cultivate looks like the kingdom of God, at its core, it is still my kingdom. And everything's fine until my kingdom clashes with your kingdom. And then there's war. So we think most often that the problem is out there, 
and the world tells you that the problem is out there. But James says it's not actually where the problem is. Look what he says. He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Look at what he said, within you. It's not out there. It's not that everybody doesn't just obey God and everything. Like the passion, the war that he's talking about is actually in you. It's in me. The first kingdom battle is our own kingdom against God's kingdom. My desire to follow Jesus and my desire to follow myself and how I think the world should work. It's not, exact, it's not about their kingdoms. It's about our own hearts. Like when was the last time during an argument you thought, you know what, I'm the problem here? Doesn't happen very often, right? And even if it does creep in, you quickly like, shh, you stay quiet. I got an argument to win. I mean, 99% of the time we are in arguments, it's because we think we are right and the other person is wrong. And we demonstrate our allegiance to our own kingdom by fighting to prove that we are right. And James says, that's the problem. The problem is you want to be king. Like the reason why all the statements in the Sermon on the Mount are so hard for us to digest are not because they're hard to understand, but how in the world can we repay evil with good? How in the world can we turn the other cheek? Like how in the world can we pray for those who persecute us and bless those who curse us? What in the world? How can we do that? The problem is that we want to be king and we want to preserve our own kingdoms. And James says... You don't have, like you, you want those things, you want your kingdom, you want what you're pursuing, and you get upset when you can't get it. And he said, the funny thing is, you don't have because you don't ask. Why? Because you're king. Why would you ask for anything? You don't need to. You can get what you want to get. You can make things happen the way you want to hap- make them happen. And even when we know that's not true, it doesn't stop us from trying. We demonstrate all the time that we think that we are master of our own domain. And then he says, but if you do ask, you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Ultimately, if we're talking about these kingdoms and this kingdom that's in me that I, that I want and God's kingdom, that even when I do ask, even when I do say, hey God, help me with this, what I'm actually asking God to do is bless my kingdom that is in rebellion against his kingdom. It would be like someone asking for aid from the United States to support someone who was against them, that was waging war against the United States. Like it doesn't make any sense. wouldn't do that. Do you stop to think how silly it is to ask God to bless your idols and to make your idols prosper, that they might win your heart over more and more that you might worship them all the way to destruction. And yet we do that. And we get very upset with him, or at the very least confused, when he doesn't answer those requests. And James is saying, snap out of it. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Does it sound familiar? Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Over and over, if you feel like, man, I feel like we've heard this sermon before, you have, because guess what? The Bible talks about this all the time. Our hearts are divided. And we make ourselves believe that they're not based on how much it kind of looks like God's kingdom. But at the end of the day, following Jesus means dying to my own kingdom. Believing that his kingdom is a treasure in a field and wanting that more than anything. And one thing that I've learned in the church over the years is that that is actually a difficult thing to get to. That most of us have deal breakers along the way. Most of us have an idea where we're like, God, I love, see, that is a really valuable treasure. Can I also bring this relic from my own kingdom along with it? Do we We have room for that, right? I just want to keep a few things. And think about all the times in the Gospels where Jesus addresses that and says, no. Anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom. Nothing is more difficult for man than to give up being God of our own kingdom. Nothing in my life has been more difficult than giving up being God in my own kingdom. And make no mistake, you cannot have a foot in both camps. He says in verse 5, do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? It's, no, it's not petty jealousy, right? There is, a, there is a pure and righteous jealousy. Like I am, it's a common you know, parallel for that is I, um, I'm jealous for my wife's affections. Like that's good and right. Now there is an unholy and sinful way for that to play out for sure, but it is good and right that I, that I want my wife to see me as her husband and to desire that and, and for my kids to see me as their dad and for that, like that's a, that's a good desire. And it goes sideways and becomes sinful when I pervert that and twist that through controlling or abuse or anything like that. But God doesn't do any of that. Right? God, God is without sin. So his form of that is just saying, I put my spirit in you. You, you belong to me. It's actually about our allegiance to him. We belong to no other God. For he has made his spirit to dwell in us. So by pursuing the world and our own kingdom, we've put ourselves as enemies of God. That's heavy. And James says, but he gives more grace. So we could look at that and James could say, and that's why you're all headed for destruction. That's why God just wiped his hands and just said, forget it, I'm done with you. But James says, no, no, this is the reality. You are constantly torn between these kingdoms. This, these kingdoms are at war within you. These passions are at war within you. This is causing all kinds of fracturing in God's family. And what's God's response? He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So James is saying, turn to him. Kill your pride. Humble yourself before the Lord. 
I think you'd say to us, what, what picture of yourself have you been trying to protect for other people? What worldview have you had that you know, that you read scripture and you say, man, that does not reconcile. But no, this has to be true because this is what I've always been taught and this is what makes sense to me. And so I just kind of gloss over those passages of scripture that make me feel uncomfortable. What, what kingdom have you been building and protecting? What thing have you chosen, whether it's comfort or security or a particular family life that you just say, no, no, these are all good things. So it's fine that I'm pursuing them, not acknowledging that you're actually pursuing your own kingdom. Where have you been doing that? What is not worth giving up for God's kingdom? Most of us live in a day-to-day life on a day-to-day basis like we have reached some kind of treaty and truce with God's kingdom. That we have an agreement. That we compromise. That we agree to do some key things to promote him whenever we're asked, to serve when we're asked, to give him credit, to give a little bit of money here and there, to not do any of the really bad things. And he agrees to let us go on about our own business, pursuing our own desires and maintaining our own kingdom. And it's a lie. And James says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. What in the world does the devil have to do with this? Like all of a sudden, James just like throws that in there. It's because he's the one who's whispering in your ear. You're right. Don't listen to what he says here. Don't listen to what God, that's not, surely that's not what God means by that. Surely when Jesus says turn the other cheek, he doesn't mean turn the other cheek. Surely when he says bless those who curse you, he he doesn't mean those who really curse you. He surely can't expect you to forgive this person or be slow to speak in this situation. And then he starts capitalizing on that and saying, you know what else? You're a pretty good person. You kind of deserve this and God seems to not be giving that to you. Why wouldn't God give you that relationship or that job? Look at all these other people who are getting those things. Why are you not getting those things? we start to listen and James says resist him and he will flee from you remember when Jesus was tempted in the desert it's always fascinating to me that the devil didn't tempt him with really overt sinful things like he doesn't tempt Jesus with hey Jesus let's just ditch everybody who cares about anybody else like let's just go and hang out and you know and, and like he doesn't do that he doesn't tempt him with overthrowing God overtly he doesn't say like why are you sent down here what in the world like what's this trinity business all about like you just need to kind of strike out on your own he doesn't do any of that he tempts at first not with lust or anger or murder but with scripture with truth everything satan said to jesus was true except what he promised to deliver. That's the thing about the enemy and how he lures us. The devil makes everything sound good and he'll sound like he's speaking the truth, whether it's tempting Jesus in the desert or Adam and Eve in the garden or you and me 
when we get up in the morning, when we see that person that we think does not deserve that blessing receive that blessing, and he just starts to pick at it. But two things will be off. His tone and his promises. His tone will be one of judgment and shame, one that feeds self-righteousness, one that strokes your ego, one that piles on in judgment of others. And his promises will be empty, promises of an easy road, promises of wealth and security here on earth, promises of a, a Christian nation if we just elect the right person and pass the right laws. His tone is dark and his promises are empty. And James says, resist him. Call him out. So you're a liar. Get away from me. James says, then draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And this is tough. Because what if he doesn't feel very near? He is always near, but we don't always know it. And you won't know it as long as you're hedging your bets. As long as you're trying to preserve your own kingdom. As long as you're looking at it and saying, okay, God, I'll, I'll jump to you right now, but only if I know. Like, if you come here and come onto my boat and take me and do all that. But he, he does all those things, but it's still never enough for us. All the things that we put before God. If you just did this, I hear this all the time. Well, if God just did this, then everybody would believe. Listen, if you read the Gospels and you believe and take those at their word of what Jesus did, I don't know what else Jesus can do. I mean, literally, he raises from the dead. He raises other people from the dead. He multiplies fishes and loaves. He heals people right in front of people. And they still look at him and go, I don't know. So let me tell you, let me put that to rest. Jesus could be here in the flesh, do some kind of miracle in front of us, and at least half of us, if not more, would say, I don't know. I'm not convinced. Because our hearts are deceitful. We can convince ourselves of just about anything. And so as long as you're trying to keep a foot in both worlds, you may not feel that God is near, even though he is. As long as you're trying to stay in control, as long as you're trying to teach, treat God as just kind of some wise sage or some giver of advice or some kind of genie that helps me out in time to time in my path, he's not those things. He is the creator of all things. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the great I am. And he has set it in his heart to redeem those who have rebelled against his kingdom, to rescue us from our sin, to give us his righteousness, to cause his spirit to dwell in us, to make us sons and daughters and heirs of his kingdom. And he does all of it to share in his glory and his joy. Just think about that. He does not hold a rebellion over our heads. He gives more grace. And often, our response is, hey, gee, thanks. Can I keep some of my stuff? Can we just remember some of my rebellion? And James is saying, turn from that. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And listen, this is not some form of, like, false form of self-loathing or punishment. 
This is not him like hammering us with it. James is saying, look, if you want to experience the treasure that God has for you, you have to face your rebellion and stop making excuses for it. Stop sugarcoating it. Stop making it sound like it's, it's not that bad. Because as long as you think it's not that bad and that you're basically a good person and God just kind of helped you over the hump, then that's all the treasure you will receive from him. That's all the grace and the joy that you will have. It will be small. Charles Spurgeon once said, if your sin is small, then your savior will be small also. Right? Tiny sin, tiny grace. We've all known what it's like to be forgiven for a small offense. It's great. Appreciate it. Charles Spurgeon says, but if your sin is great, then your Savior must be great. And when you do this, when you just lay that out, look what happens. James says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. It's in the laying out of my heart and just saying, listen, I have nothing to defend myself. I have rebelled against your kingdom I've desired this. It's not even just that I've kind of fallen into something. Like, I've chosen to rebel against your kingdom. Forgive me. Show me. Lead me. I want to listen to you. I want to seek the treasure that is the kingdom of God. It is in doing that that the Lord then exalts us and lifts us up. If you do that, then look at what you gain. As James deals with this in a section. Go back to the beginning. Look at what you gain. You gain peace. We started by talking about how tired we are of all the fighting. And so many of us, like, we want peace. And he offers it. And here's the awesome thing. If you are submitted to God's kingdom, then it doesn't matter what others are doing. You will be at peace. As long as you are the king of your own kingdom, then you'll feel out of control, anxious, stressed, frustrated with others because they don't obey you. They don't submit to your kingdom. But with God, when you are submitted to him and his kingdom, then you know that he's working all things together for good. So what do you have to be frustrated with the world about You know that he is sovereign over all things, so what do you have to be anxious about? You know that he makes all things right, so what do you have to be bitter about? You know that he is perfectly just and holy and good, so what concern do you have? And if we're able to have peace despite the circumstances around us, even if we are surrounded by people who are living for their own kingdoms, how much more peace should there be when we are God's family submitted to him together. I mean, remember, James is not writing this to a church who is experiencing life in some kind of utopia, some kind of Christian worldview government. They are being persecuted. And what's happening is that's drilling down and they are fighting with each other. And he's saying, listen, If you believe what Jesus says about his kingdom, then you have nothing to be at war with each other about. And you know, I think an example of this, I think of marriage. The most common worldly advice for marriages is the importance of compromise. 
If you ask people who've had a long marriage and, and they're not Christ followers, like the most worldly advice that they will give is the importance of compromise. Why? Because it assumes that you have your own kingdoms. And a marriage is really about a peace treaty between two kingdoms. And obviously those kingdoms will want the same things from time to time and, and then other times will have differing interests. And so then what? What do you do when, when you have different interests in that? Well, you give a little and you take a little. But what if I feel like I'm compromising more than the other person is? What if they feel like they're compromising more than I am? See how it still breaks down. But in a Christian marriage that reflects the gospel, the most important advice, advice is not compromise, but to submit to God. To find your fulfillment in Christ so that you're free to love your spouse selfishly and without needing anything in return. And that can be applied to friendships and all relationships and working environments and everywhere. If you are submitted to the sovereign God of the universe and you just say, God, I'm going to be faithful in every moment to you, then you're free to love and to serve. So do that. When you find yourself at odds with someone, ask yourself, what kingdom am I proclaiming right now? Where is my allegiance? I can tell you that that cuts me to the heart many times. I hate asking myself that question. And over the years... The Spirit's voice has gotten louder in my head and in my heart saying, who are you pledging your allegiance to right now? Because it seems like your goal right now is to convince that person that you're right. It seems like your goal right now is to defend your own kingdom. It seems like right now you're just trying to get what you want and the result that you want. And if my allegiance is to Jesus, that's where I find the strength to repay evil with good, to turn the other cheek, to bless those who curse me, to be the first to apologize, to apologize and not expect anything in return. The question is, where's my allegiance? And it is in that that we'll find peace. And we'll find contentment, by the way. When we pursue our kingdom in this world, it's, it's a zero-sum game. That's what creates this covetousness, and I don't want to spend any time. We don't have time to really go into that. But the bottom line is, when we're pursuing our own kingdom, our own kingdom is limited, right? So there's only so much to go around. And if you have something, that means I don't get that thing. Whether we're competing for the same job, the same house, the same relationship, same whatever, like I can't get what you already have and you having something takes away from me. That's how the world functions. That's why we get upset with each other. It's why we have jealousy and covetousness. But if God is your provider, what do you have to be jealous about? What do you have to be concerned about? Wouldn't that just tell you, man, if God is that blessed, like if, that, if he's that rich in blessing towards that person, like what am I going to get to expect? I mean, imagine, I have three kids. Imagine if we open up on Christmas, we give them presents, and the first one gets this amazing gift that they've been wanting. And the second one opens their gift, and they get this amazing gift that, they, that they've been wanting. What would make sense for the third child to expect? Would they look at that and go, oh, they probably ran out of money. <laughs> probably not going to get anything. This is the worst. 
I hated that they got that thing. No, like you'd be thinking, oh my goodness, what am I going to get to open? And that's how it is with God. Like when I see, like when I'm elite, when I am pledging my allegiance to Christ, and I see people rejoice, that's what makes the church able to rejoice with one another, which is something the world does terribly at. But we can do awesome at because we can look at each other and be like, "Isn't our Father great? I love it that He gave you that. I love it that He blessed you in that way. That's amazing." And we rejoice and we have contentment because our Father is good. And he gives abundantly. And our puny kingdoms can't last. They don't last. They can't satisfy. And what we are able to trade it for is a kingdom that is everlasting and fully satisfying. So, as you go forward, ask yourself those questions. Who are you pledging your allegiance to? What kingdom are you really pursuing and serving? And let's let our number one aim be to surrender to Jesus as king in every moment, every interaction. Every interaction, pledging our allegiance to Jesus. Just try that. I think you might find that we often, remember when I said those two kingdoms and one that kind of looks like Christianity? I'll just give you one example. When somebody from the world is living in a way or doing something that we know is against God's word, we often feel it that it's our number one priority to tell them that what they're doing is wrong and to try to convince them that that's the wrong way to live. But if we look at how Jesus lives his life, his number one concern is the will of the Father. It's his allegiance as king of his kingdom. What would it look like if rather than looking at people and saying like, okay, I have to control this situation and fix this situation, if we just said, what does it look like to be faithful to Jesus right now? To say, Jesus, you are my king. My ego is not king. My desires are not king. You are. And you say to turn the other cheek, to bless those who curse me, to not be surprised if the world hated you, then they'll hate me and to find my hope and my treasure in you. And then, as you do that, tell others about that king. So when somebody says, why are you nice to that person after the way they treated you? Because Jesus is my king. My pride is not my king. Why don't you get anxious about what's happening in the, in the world right now? Because Jesus is my king. Like too often, we try, we think that what God wants from us is to go out there and make everybody live according to kingdom principles. That is not what he wants. He never says that. His concern is that his children worship him, surrender to him, pledge allegiance to his kingdom, and live out that kingdom in front of a lost and hurting world, telling them about our king. We proclaim his kingdom and we demonstrate his kingdom. That's our job. And honestly, I hope that that relieves some pressure off of you. I hope it relieves a little bit of stress of feeling like you always have to have the right answers and you always have to have the right argument. You always have to figure out, no, you don't. Be representations and ambassadors of Christ. You can't possibly read about the life and ministry of Jesus and conclude that our job is to get 
the world out there to live according to kingdom morals and ethics. It's just not. Jesus came to tell people about God's kingdom and to live it out. The only time he gets angry is when people are perverting his father's kingdom and keeping people from it. Just imagine if that was the only thing that you and I got upset about. How different would our days look? So turn. Let's together, you, me, all of us together, turn from our rebellion, remind each other of our king, proclaim him, cleanse our hands and mourn and repent and receive the grace of God and go all in with his kingdom. And if you don't know where to start, if you're sitting here listening, well, I don't know where to start, let me just tell you, you have to be careful in a culture like ours because you'll piece together all kinds of things and that'll form like this kind of false version of the kingdom. The best place to start is open your Bible And if you don't have one, we have them everywhere. Like you grab one and take it home with you and read it. I would encourage you to start with the Gospel of Luke and talk to God through his word. Have a conversation with him. As you see Jesus doing things on the page, ask him, God, why would you do this? Why did Jesus do this? Why why is he treating people this way? What does this mean? And wrestle with it and talk with him and learn to hear his voice and latch on to others who are doing the same. That is only if you desire his kingdom and you turn from rebellion of your kingdom and you say, Jesus, I'm in. And pursue him. And together, we grow more and more as God's people, citizens of his kingdom, submitted to our king and proclaiming his goodness to a lost and hurting world as God's family on mission. Let's pray. Father, we... And I, I, God, I, I don't know right now what is going on in um, people's hearts or minds, Lord, but you do. And I pray, Father, that whatever it is that you are wanting to speak to our hearts, that it would come through loud and clear. And Lord, I pray that right now, in this moment, that we would be able to discern the voice of the evil one from the voice of the spirit, that we would hear that tone, that we would hear the accuser and the liar and the manipulator and we would reject him and say, depart from me. And that we would hear your voice, your sheep hearing our shepherd's voice and knowing it. And we would trust it. And Lord, I'm so grateful you're patient with us and gracious to us because it is hard to die to our own kingdoms. It is a process that we will go through until we are with you for eternity. But here now, Lord, help us to daily put to death our own kingdoms and to pledge our allegiance to you, Lord Jesus, and you alone to commit our lives to following you to living out being citizens of the kingdom in front of a world who is in desperate need of this good news, that we would be able to say, Jesus is my king. And this is what the kingdom looks like. Help us, Lord, to live at peace with one another. Help us to share in your glory and your joy. In Jesus' name, amen.